Our scripture today um, comes from Luke uh, 1, 5 to 24. Um, it says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the Lord's sight, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name of John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to, to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have sent you to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to be speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor in taking away my disgrace among the people. Amen. Uh, right now, we're in the season of Advent, and it's one of the more misunderstood seasons of the church year. A lot of times we think of it as an extension of Christmas, the time when we look back to when Jesus was born. But more than anything, it's actually a time to look forward to the time when Jesus returns to the earth. It's more about his second coming than his first one. Part of what adds to the confusion is that a lot of our Advent themes have to do with Christmas as well. But the main purpose of looking back to Christmas at Advent is because we're putting ourselves in the position of the people who were living before Jesus came the first time. They were hoping for God to return in his fullness to his people, and they were delighted and surprised when they found out that God had really returned to them in human form. We're really in a similar position to them. We look around at the world we live in, and we see so much violence and pain and suffering and depression, and we recognize that we need God to come into our midst and save us. Our only hope is like, like, like them. We would be delighted and surprised when God comes to us in a new way. Just like the characters in this story, we look forward to the time when God returns to his people. But this time, 
we're looking forward to God's entire creation going back to its original purpose. Except even better, because we get to enjoy it with a huge multitude of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That day when peace and justice reign permanently in God's kingdom. At Advent, we look at beautiful passages which talk about a new heaven and a new earth and God wiping away every tear from our eyes and people beating their weapons of war into farming implements and the peace and reconciliation of all people on earth. And we see a vision of a beautiful place where the world is going. And when that happens, we understand our mission as Christians for the world a little bit better. We are meant to be a blessing to the world and we're going to be used by God to bear witness to that world which is prophesied in, that be- in those beautiful passages. We make our little corner of the world just l- look a little bit more like that world when we're really doing our mission. Now, it might be difficult to believe all those promises that God gives us about this amazing wor- place that the world is going. We look at the world right now, and we can't imagine it being redeemed and, and being set completely right. If you were being skeptical, you would think someone was selling you something, right? But the way that we know that Jesus is coming back to the earth and bringing the redemption of creation is that we know that God already did it once, and he can do it again. When Jesus came to the world, all the promises which began when God first made his covenant with Abraham in 2000 BC, and when God told Eve so many years earlier that her offspring would crush the head of Satan, found their fulfillment. And so we know that even 2,000 years later than that, that God will fulfill his promises that he gave to us. At Advent, we put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are waiting for God to come the first time, because that's our guarantee that he will come again. At Advent, we get to experience secondhand the joy and the delight that they experienced when they discovered that God had first come back to his people, knowing that one day we will experience ourselves firsthand. So let's spend some time in their shoes today. To do that, let's spend some time to understand the seemingly hopeless situation that the characters in this story experienced. Because it's a lot like the hopeless situation we find ourselves in. God made a good world by getting rid of chaos and non-existence. But humans sinned, and that caused the world to fall back into chaos and non-existence. God began to recreate the world by making a deal with a guy named Abraham, and that his whole family would be the ones to return the presence of God to the world and that God would bless them. That family became Israel, and all the characters in this story are members of that family. God physically lived among this family in a temple that was basically his house. He gave them a king, and he made an unbreakable covenant that a king from David's line would sit on the throne of Israel forever, and that through this king, God would abolish chaos and evil, just like he did at creation. They had to follow two important rules, if God would recreate the world through them. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But the Israelites were absolutely terrible at following these rules. And the natural punishment for their sins was exile, being driven away from God and away from the land that God had given them, just like what happened in the Garden of Eden. And God had invaders take over Israel, and there was no Israelite king for hundreds of years. First the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, all ruled over Israel. God had promised to David that a king from his line would always sit on the throne of Israel. And it seemed like as long as there was an Israelite king, that God's relationship with Israel was still on. And if God's relationship with Israel was still on, that meant that God would bring, back the, bring the world back to the way it was always supposed to be, 
but they had no king. And even when they returned to the promised land, it was clear that they were only there because of the permission of the foreign invaders. They lived under the oppression of foreign kingdoms for centuries, and they hoped that God would allow the rightful king of Israel to come back to lead them. In the Old Testament, God was supposed to be especially present in his temple. When the Israelites came back from foreign lands, they built the temple up so that hopefully God would return to them. But even God was said not to have come back to his temple. And their only hope was described in Malachi 3, which says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, says the Lord Almighty. As you might notice, the temple is the setting for this passage in Luke. As Malachi says, when God returns to his people, sets up his new kingdom, and ends Israel's sad and lonely exile, the first place you'll notice it will be the temple. And it will come suddenly. That's the most fervent hope for Israel at this time. Just like it's our most fervent hope that God, that Jesus will return suddenly to us. And it had been almost 600 years since the people of Israel really felt the presence of God was with them in Jerusalem. And by feeling the presence of God, I don't mean some objective emotion, a subjective emotion. I'm talking about something which, if missing, everyone knows it. If God is in his temple, then everyone knows it. If you turn to 1 Kings 8, you'll see what I mean. The temple had just been built by Solomon, and the Israelites were putting the Ark of the Covenant, which is basically the throne where God sits, into the place where it belongs in God's temple. In 1 Kings 8-7, it says that the two winged angel statues on either end of the Ark of the Covenant spread out their wings to cover the Ark. Statues don't normally do that. Then in 8-10, it says, A cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the presence of God filled the house of the Lord which recalls the way that God was with the Israelites in a pillar of cloud in the desert. In other words, people knew when God was really in his temple, and it was obvious to everyone that he really wasn't. God wasn't back in his temple, so Israel was still in exile. And because of that, as an Israelite, you'd have to wonder whether the covenant that, that made the Israelites God's people was still on, and whether God was going to save them and save the whole world. They'd have to have felt so hopeless since nothing they'd, seemed, they'd try seemed to be working. God isn't coming back, it seems like. In the back of their minds, they'd have to think, we really have sinned so badly that God has given up on us. The Jewish people even split up into a ton of different factions with different ideas about how to get God back in his temple and to return Israel from exile. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes, all these Jewish factions had their own ideas about what they had to do to make God come back to his temple. The Pharisees thought they had to obey the law really well. The Zealots thought they had to overthrow Rome. The Essenes thought they had to remain pure and set apart from everyone. They all had different ideas, but the main question they were asking was the same. How do we get God to come back to his temple? Because they knew deep down that was their only hope. God returning to his temple is the goal of all of Israel. It was the pie in the sky hope that makes everyone in the back of their minds afraid that it will never happen. Just like Jesus returning to us sounds so great, but we've waited so long that sometimes we're afraid it won't happen. That's the temple that Zechariah is entering in this passage. It's not the temple that is so filled with the presence of God that the priests can't even see what they're doing. It's completely barren. They maintain the temple. They offer incense there. They do everything they can to keep it from being defiled. 
hoping against hope that, like Malachi said, the Lord whom you seek will return suddenly to his temple. And here Zechariah walks into the temple while everyone is praying outside, pointlessly repeating the same old thing that everyone has done for hundreds of years. There was a time when God's presence so filled the temple that it was dangerous to enter, but now it was barren and sterile. When Zechariah enters, though, he doesn't see the barren and empty most holy place. To his surprise, when he walked into the temple, he wasn't alone. Something incredible was happening. But he also doesn't see the glorious vision of God that once filled the temple either. He doesn't see clouds filling the temple so much that he can't see. Instead, he sees an angel of God. And this was foreshadowing. God was coming back to his people, but it wasn't going to be in the same way it happened before. It wasn't through a nebulous cloud, but through a flesh and blood human being in Jesus Christ. The angel says that Zachariah and Elizabeth will have a child who will go in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is a huge Old Testament theme with lots of background. But suffice it to say that Elijah was the most powerful and greatest prophet in the Old Testament. God was with him in miracles that no other prophet could do. Malachi prophesied that just before God suddenly came to his temple, that he would send a prophet like Elijah. The implication was clear when the angel said this. The exile was over. The covenant that God had had with Israel to save the world through them was back on. The teen was returning. God is with us again, and the whole world will be saved. All of the stories of God from hundreds of years ago were real. Zechariah is a name that means Yahweh has remembered, or as in, God has remembered his people. Of course, when his parents named him that, it was out of a forlorn hope that God would, really would remember his people and come back and free them from the oppression of Rome. But now, his name is a declaration of exactly what happened the day that he entered the temple. God has remembered his people, and the Lord whom you seek has returned suddenly to the temple. The covenant is still on. God is saving the earth by entering into the world in the person of Jesus Christ and redeeming his people from their sins. This Advent, we give thanks that we really have the presence of God, not simply in a temple somewhere, but that he lives within our hearts. This, this gives us a vision of being so filled with the presence of God, just like in 1 Kings 8, that we are unable to control it. God came to us all those years ago, and he's left a lasting mark and his promised Holy Spirit. And if you want to know what that looks like, just ask anybody who's had the Spirit for a long time. But we were also, just like Zachariah was, waiting for God to come and make his presence known once again. We see all kinds of evil all over the world, and we need God to come back and make the world right again. We need Jesus to return and save us. Advent helps us to remember that the story isn't over that we need God to invade history and to set up his new kingdom. Like the Sadducees, a lot of us have decided that God really isn't coming back. A lot of us have decided that all God does is sit up in heaven and watch people and take up the good ones to heaven and the bad ones to hell. People don't just worship that God now. They worship that God in Jerusalem at the time, at the, at the time when the events of this story were written. They were called the Sadducees. And they basically decide that God lives far off and doesn't really do anything on earth. But the God of the Sadducees, who just stays far off and doesn't interfere, is not the God of the Bible. 
God doesn't just sit up in heaven and watch people. We need Advent because we don't want to be satisfied with some made-up God of the Sadducees. He will never come and redeem the earth that he made. We need Advent because it reminds us that we are waiting for Jesus to return suddenly to his people and to create a new heaven and a new earth. We pray for his return so that we don't have to deal with evil and sin anymore. We pray for his return because, so that we can live in brotherhood and love with one another. And we know that he'll do it someday because we've heard the story about when God returned suddenly to his temple that day in 6 BC when Zechariah hopelessly trudged his way on in and was overcome with the fear of the Lord. You might notice that the book of Luke doesn't mention the name of Jesus until 30 verses in. Instead, Luke wants to catch up his audience on what it really meant that Jesus was coming into the world. He gives us stories about people like Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, and Anna to show his audience that there were normal, faithful Jewish people who waited their entire lives to see God return to his temple and to finally see proof that God had not rejected his people. They trusted that the great and unchanging God, always faithful to his commitments despite the sins of his people, would one day reinstate the covenant that he had made with Israel. And once that happened, the world would inevitably be saved too. And sovereign Lord, aren't we in the same position now? We have waited our entire lives and given ourselves to God's kingdom, and we hope against hope that one day, who knows, maybe we walk into church and are overcome with the presence of God like Zechariah was all those years ago. Maybe God returns to his people and sets everything right. It's our only hope. If you listen to the songs we hear at Christmas, whether Christian or secular, I think you might hear something like this. Sure, they're joyful, but it's also mixed with this incredible longing for something. Listen to songs like I'll Be Home for Christmas, or Blue Christmas, or I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, and you'll have this incredible feeling of homesickness. It doesn't matter whether you're even leaving at home. It's so wistful that if you let it capture you when you're listening, I'm sure it'll overcome you. I think it's the, this is the kind of feeling that all the faithful Jews like Zachariah were feeling. They come to the temple every year and make their sacrifices, but they know something's missing. The temple was a beautiful structure, and the traditions of their ancestors were beautiful traditions, but they couldn't help but hope for more. Christmas is a beautiful holiday, and we have great traditions associated with it, but we can't help but long for more. Just like the Jews in this story, we're homesick, and nothing we do really seems to fix it. This is an experience whether you're having a great Christmas or a rough one. If Christmas is rough for you, you can't help but dream about a time when it was the way that Christmas was supposed to be, or to pray that one day you'll experience the Christmas that you see other people feel. But even if you have a great Christmas, you can't help but remember that it only lasts so long. It's only one day of the year. The next day, or if you're lucky in a week, you'll head back to work and be confronted with it all again. Your kids are so excited about some gift they got, but someday they'll grow up and the match will be dawn. We are longing for something beautiful at this time, and nothing in this world can satisfy that longing. But like C.S. Lewis says, if nothing in this world can satisfy that longing that we have for during Christmas, maybe that means that we were made for another world. And maybe that's the world we're homesick for, one where God is with us every day, and nothing stands between us and God and between me and you.
We can prepare and make this world as good as we can make it, and, that, and we should. But in the end, we are going to be left with a wistful longing. We can't help but dream of Christ's return with a longing and hunger even greater than what's in Bean Crosby's voice when he dreams of a white Christmas. But this week of Advent isn't dedicated to hope, but to joy. And that's the joy we have, because we know that there will be a time when we'll experience the beauty and joy that's a lot like the beauty and joy of a white Christmas, peacefully enjoyed with family and friends, but where we won't ever have to worry about the magic running out. It's the kind of joy that Zachariah and the faithful Israelites would have experienced, where what you have longed for for so long, to the point that you disbelieve that it will actually come, is really here. It's all for real. God is returning to his people and setting the world right. The covenant is back on. All our suffering for his sake wasn't in vain. We aren't waiting for something that will never come, but instead every bit of our lives is infused with meaning because we want every single person to experience that joy. That's the kind of feeling that these faithful Jews got when God returned to his people. It was the culmination and fulfillment of all our deepest longings, which are most obvious at Christmas. And if he did it for them, then we know he'll do it for us. It's our only hope, and it's the only hope worth hoping for. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.